You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow a side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews. So let's get started. Hey guys, just checking in with a quick update before I get into today's show. So remember a few episodes back where I was talking about looking at the Black Voices in Business category on iTunes and was super bummed that Side Hustle Pro wasn't included? Well, recently Apple has named Side Hustle Pro one of the Black Voices in Business. Woohoo! I'm so proud to be on that list among some of the podcasters who I really admire and respect, like the Job Logs team, as well as Raina Campbell from Dreams and Drive. So shout out to iTunes for that. I can't believe it, but Side Hustle Pro is under a year old. And in the short time that I've created Side Hustle Pro, we've grown to over 20,000 followers on Instagram, a community of almost 1,000 people, and just almost 100,000 downloads. As a matter of fact, I think we will hit 100,000 downloads this week. So if I had to name the one thing that has been most impactful in my brand, it has to be Instagram. And that's why I decided to develop this course to teach all of you business owners how I've been able to leverage Instagram to build my brand, gain subscribers, downloads, and customers. So head over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash master the gram if you want to learn all my secrets. I am telling you everything. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co forward slash master the gram. All right, guys, so let's get into today's episode. Today in the guest chair, we welcome Lola Bakery, a social media strategist, savvy content marketer, and the founder of Lola Consulting. Lola Consulting specializes in digital marketing, including user acquisition, brand messaging, partnership development, and social media strategy. Fun fact, Lola and I went to undergrad together, and I admire her greatly. Why? because she followed the path well-traveled for many years before finally leaping into entrepreneurship. On this episode, Lola shares her pathway from majoring in econ at Penn to landing in brand management by chance, while she ultimately got her MBA and how it influenced her current path as an entrepreneur, and how she finally worked up the nerve to develop her own company. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Lola. Tell us more about what you currently do and why. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, my name is Lola Brackery. I go by Lola. My full name is Titi Lola. Um, I am a first-generation um, Nigerian and American, I suppose I would say it. My parents are born in Nigeria. I was born and raised here, but definitely very much claim both nationalities. Um, and why we're talking today, um, and again, I'm humbled to be of the ilk that, um, you know, qualifies uh, in terms of your mission statement is talking about those who've sort of successfully turned side hustles into um, full-time jobs. I currently um, am a, what I like to call, and this is one of the things that you probably talk about a lot, is like, what do you call yourself when someone hasn't given you a job title? Um, I, I think of it as a content marketing strategist um, and 
you know, I'm, I work independently for myself. So the working name of my quote unquote firm, which I don't really even necessarily see it that way, but Lola Consulting, that's the name I've been using on my Facebook page and things like that, um, you know, on my Twitter presence and all of that. And what I do is I, in, you know, in a word, help companies, whether they're startups or established brands, um, tell their story digitally um, and acquire users and audience that they're looking for in order to help them achieve their business goals, focusing on um, social media as a place where I have some expertise due to previous work that I've done, um, and really focusing on bringing um, a confluence of focus between data, analytics, um, you know, content expertise as far as what great content really looks like, um, and and creativity and bringing those things together to help companies, brands, um, and even, you know, and individuals. I've, I've done some work with just people who are trying to um, reach a particular audience in, in a certain way. And and helping them do that successfully in a way that's going to help them grow their business. Um, so with the end goal always being business growth. Okay. And before we get into um, your background in brand and, and how you got into content marketing, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and how did that influence your entrepreneurial spirit? Like were you exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs as a child? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's super exciting. And I was thinking about that. Um, this morning and preparing for this conversation. I mean, I think there's a stereotype out there and there are positive and negative stereotypes. One of the positive stereotypes of Nigerian and people of Nigerian origin, but I think it's definitely true is that we're just, we're just, it's in our blood, the idea of entrepreneurship and creating business, solving problems for profit, if you will. Um, and that's certainly something that I saw from the beginning of my life with my parents. Um, so my dad is a doctor. He's an OBGYN, very Huxtable-ish sort of situation. Um, and my mother is a trained lawyer and also an MBA. She got her MBA at American University. Um, and so when my parents came here, she was studying at American University to get her MBA. And my dad was finishing his residency at Howard University. Um, so, so we were first in DC, um, and they have both always been about creation. Um, some big examples from my childhood of that are my mom had a children's clothing store, sort of boutique cayenne children's clothing in the Harrisburg area when we moved there. Um, we moved there when I was two and I don't remember what exact year she had the store, but it was good I think six or seven years of my childhood um and she was going this is someone who had business background but also legal background and took that into this children's fashion space I remember traveling with her on the train to Manhattan where she'd visit buyers really cool experience yeah I spent a lot of time in the store we still have wrapping paper literally that we still use in the holidays that's from the store <laughs> all those years ago it closed sometime in the 90s um and my dad, you know, being an OBGYN seems like there's a pretty cut and dry way that you do that. Um, whether you work for yourself or for the hospital, he's always done both. Um, and there was a time where he had a really interesting business model 
um, that was called the Birthing Center. And that was prior to the wave of sort of like holistic um, birth and, you know, holistic um, sort of the, the approach of having your baby not in a hospital setting, um, still with all the modern medical advancements, but like it was a townhouse down in downtown Harrisburg, right across the street from the hospital. And the birthing rooms were set up like these beautiful country home bedrooms. And this was in the early 90s in central Pennsylvania. Like this was not a, this wasn't, this wasn't now in LA or now in New York. He was, had this idea and, and did it and tried to make it work. And, you know, it was great for a long time. And, you know, he ended up going back to the business model of more of a traditional doctor's office setting. But I really respect the fact that he tried that and went all in on it. Um, these are two examples of brick and mortar businesses where you really put a lot on the line. Um, and funny enough, when I was looking up the definition for entrepreneur, that's part of it. It's the idea of comfort with risk um, in an effort to create something novel or, you know, something that's going to be worth it, worth that risk. But you do, you're comfortable with taking that risk. So in answer your question, that spirit of comfort with risk um, and belief in the power of groundbreaking ideas is definitely in my book. So talk to me a little bit about how you got your start working in brand and content marketing. You know, obviously we went to Penn together, um, did the whole communications major thing, but then, wait, was that your what? major? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> so, all right, clearly explain to the people what you studied and how you got into brand. It's just from then till now, it's always been about taking an opportunity that may seem somewhat out of the blue or uncomfortable and just giving it all that you have at that time. So when you ask how I got into brand, the reality is <laughs> senior year, I probably would have told you I was going to go to New York and be a journalist. Um, I was writing a column for the Daily Pennsylvania at the time and just really thinking about writing as something I was passionate about. But I never really felt like I had that fire for reporting. Like, you know, that like, I mean, you work at NPR, so you totally know. Mm -hmm. That fire for just like the production that comes along with being a reporter versus um, being more interested in the persuasive element of writing. And at the, at the time, I, I mean, I didn't take a single marketing class at Penn. I was an English major. I took communications 101 that class that we all took and it wasn't one of my favorite classes <laughs> I, mean, I mean and that's i don't know that i was unique in that view but um it just this i was i was i was about literature and writing and persuasive essays and ideas I mean, that's what i was about um all of my columns were about opinions and yeah you, you backed them up with data but it was about making people understand an idea um, not necessarily communicating to people what happened, which is how I see um, reporting in the traditional way. Um, so I didn't really have a clear path, but I wasn't worried about it. Things have always just kind of found a way of working themselves out. However, because I listen to friends, um, and that this is a huge theme, like every turning point that we'll talk about has involved conversations with friends being particularly enlightening. 
And one conversation, one of our classmates, she was, she's a little bit more by the book than me. And she was kind of like, what are you going to do next year? And I, I wasn't in that whole Wharton recruiting thing, go get a job in consulting or banking or I was just kind of, I wasn't thinking about it that way. I was just like, I'm still in college. Like, I'll figure it out. Um, And she really pushed me to get out there and do some interviews in the fall recruiting cycle. So I did. I started learning about what the different opportunities that were coming to campus to recruit people. Um, I went to career services and got my resume past the point of one of my friends in Wharton uh, who shall remain nameless, he called it embarrassing. Like it was like second grader style resume. Like I did not have that down at all. Got that brushed up um, and started sending out cover letters to try to get in some of these interview slots. Um, part of that was going to see to the executive presentations that were coming to campus. And I remember the very day where Pepsi Chicago office presented about the marketing associate opportunity in brand management that they bring. And I'm not sure if they continue to bring it, but at that point they brought it to campus every year. Some of the Penn grads who had taken that position came and presented. And I, I kind of had this eureka moment that like, wait a minute, this marketing thing is kind of what I'm excited about, even though I didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, all about products and being on a team and convincing people of the value of something. And I, I can see it. Like I can see myself doing it. Um, but as you know, those interviews are so competitive. What I had to do was very quickly learn how to speak that language. Mm-hmm. And I did that by talking to the people who'd taken marketing classes for four years. Um, you know, I learned the five P's and none of this is rocket science, right? Um, but combined with the willingness to kind of do that homework and my inherent passion for stories and and persuasiveness and products, quite frankly, like that was part of it. I could talk about things that I love in a very compelling way, get other people to love them too. Like fundamentally, that's what marketers do. There's some disciplines and tools that we apply that to that take study. But the inherent passion is really, you can't be a person that can't get excited about pretty much any sort of product, in my opinion, um, that serves a purpose or solves a problem or delights people. Like that's solving problems. Not everything has to be deep. Um, a, I'm, just this, I'm like looking across the room in my apartment right now. An adult coloring book. I'm just like, like just something as basic as that. It solves a problem. It's not a problem of depth or excitement, but there's a reason for it to exist and there's a reason why they've blown up in the past couple of years. So I can get behind any product that has that delight factor if it's at its best. And I think that's kind of what they saw in me and they chose me as the marketing associate who was successful in those interviews, you know, out of I hate to say it, but you know, hundreds of people that apply. That's uh, awesome. And talk about some other defining moments in your career. You know, you've gone from Pepsi, you've made several moves since then, including going back to get your MBA. So what informed those decisions? (laughs) Well, if you ask, let's go back to Nigerian parents. If you ask my dad, I was always going to go to grad school, (laughs) whether it was to study medicine, get an MBA or get, you know, a PhD and butterfly sciences or whatever. 
like that was just something that I needed to have in his opinion. So from day one at Pepsi, it was like, this is a fun warm up for, you know, and the, the way we discussed it, it became the NBA. Uh, it was just in his mind, kind of a foregone conclusion. I won't say that that's why I did it, but it was certainly an influence. I can be perfectly honest about that. The other really important influence to go to the NBA were some of these great organizations that you and I are both a part of, like the consortium. So at Pepsi, I had the pleasure of being involved in diversity recruiting which involved going to the consortium conference numerous times. I think I'd been three times or when I was at Pepsi, two or three times. And I just started to meet these people who were doing these amazing things who, unlike the sort of traditional um, way that you might think about someone who goes to get their MBA, who's like financial whiz and really into um these very traditional roles. I started meeting people doing all kinds of things and who were really true intellectuals in a way that I could relate to um, that made me feel like maybe getting an MFA in creative writing wasn't the only true graduate school experience. And maybe this MBA thing that, you know, my dad is pushing me to go do could actually be a, a, a beautiful thing for my um, intellectual development and professional development more so than just this transactional thing to go do it to get a job. Um, and that was really what got me excited about to the point where I was able to put in the work to get there. Um, and that was, it, it, I mean, I, I was more right than I ever could have imagined. Those were the two best years probably that I've experienced in any situation. And so there's been a lot of great things, but those were great years. Um, I went to NYU Stern in New York, met amazing people, had the pleasure of serving as the editor-in-chief of our school and newspaper, among a number of other extracurricular activities, did a ton of just random intern experiences during the year, even since we're in New York, you could do that. So you go to but, you go to Stern. You you your internship was with Diageo, right? Diageo, yeah. yeah. And and how how did that lead you um, into your full time role? So that was interesting in that it, for anyone listening to this who goes through the MBA experience thinking I want to explore something new. So my focus was trying to get kind of closer to what I loved about being an English major around content and marry that with marketing. So although being in consumer goods, I was on the Gatorade brand, like that's a dream job for anyone. I got to do so many amazing things and work on one of the world's best brands and with the smartest people in the world. Um, there was still a place in my heart that wanted to be closer to sort of content creation. Um, so I, I started learning more about the entertainment media technology track at Stern, and that felt like a place where I could kind of potentially transition into that world. Um, however, when the recruiters come knocking and there's this pressure to kind of line something up for the summer, it's much easier to go back to what you've already done. And so I convinced myself that the brand management 
role at Diageo because it's a super cool, sexy company and they make Ciroc and they do all these, you know, it's, it's, it is, and by all standards, I still believe that it's a very exciting place to work. Um, I chose that versus taking a bit more of a risk and doing something less traditional over the summer, um, which was my choice. And I won't say it was the wrong one, but it did teach me that, all right, for this full-time job, like you've got to get into another industry. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to do it because I. You also do want to line something up, but like that was important to me. Um, and then it was at the Black MBA conference where I met people from Dell and started thinking about technology as a different approach to get closer to the content part of marketing. Um, and it's something I told myself that um, I actually still kind of believe you're going to be marketing. Because, you know, my, my beginning role at Dell was always going to be about consumer. Mm-hmm. You're going to be marketing yeah. laptops. Like, that's where people consume content. Like, that's close. We can talk about that as a progression. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the narrative made sense to me. It may not even really make sense to anybody else who hears that kind of an eye roll. But when considering my options and also thinking about exploring a different part of the country, that took me to Austin, Texas. I was like, let's let's do it. Another great experience. Learned a ton. Met amazing people. And that was where I first delved into the wonderful world of social media. Um, Dell didn't have a consumer team focused on social media. And that was all coming together while I was there. So I was able to kind of position myself as someone who could be a major part of bringing that to life in a company that had done such a great job of championing the importance of social media at an overall corporate level. It's like, how does this come into how we actually market our consumer goods? Um, so it was great timing, but also, again, a willingness to sort of stick my neck out there and then learn versus learn it and then stick my neck out there. How did you finally work up the nerve to leave and i know you weren't at dell when you finally um you know wave goodbye to a stable job but how did you finally work up that nerve like what experiences led up to that moment where you said yeah i'm gonna found lola consulting yes well um here's the thing it's it was very much a progression as far as knowing i needed to do something else that led me to the answer so it wasn't just calculated as now I want to go work for myself. It was, um, let, let, let me touch on the experience that I had after Dell. I left Dell. I elected to leave Dell to take a job as um, director of brand marketing at the Daily Dot, which is a publication, especially anyone who's Facebook friends with me must know, because especially that time I was sharing articles like, you know, three times a day. I still love the publication and read a publication and, um, and think it's a very unique approach to reporting about what happens in the world of the internet. That's kind of um, the premise. But there, it was that was where it all really came together. Like, talk about a pivotal career moment. This love of journalism and content, my English major background, my love of marketing, and now I'm director of brand marketing at a digital publication, like pure nirvana, right? Um, in that role, it was all about getting readers. How do you do that? 
Um, so I learned all of the social media and marketing trickery is the word that comes to mind, but I don't really believe it's trickery, but tactics and the strategies that we use to get news in front of those who are going to consume it. Also, loving the very sometimes challenging wrestle that involve that that involves with the editorial teams who and especially at daily dot like this is a huge thing it, it can't be about writing making the writing the thing that gamifies that um acquisition of readership like the writing has to be pure and it has to have journalistic integrity so how do you toe that line and what is the suite of tactics that you use to do those things together. So it was just, it was a dream situation for me. Um, I did that for, I want to say it was almost two years. Like dates become fuzzy when you're looking back at the whole story. Um, but what ended up happening was I, I started to see in a continuous gulf of uh, cultural fit at the particular organization, and especially the startup. Um, which it was, if the cultural fit's not there, it makes things very difficult for everyone, um, regardless of how much respect folks try to bring to the table for each other. Um, there are just some things that are different points of view. And if it's not your startup, you can't really do anything about that at the end of the day. For example, you know, and this is this is where we get into territory that's not necessarily the most comfortable, but it's real. Um, I was the only full-time person of color at the entire organization for the duration of my time there. I don't know what it's like now. And it's not that there weren't conversations being had, and they did hire me. I, I, I applied to that job through LinkedIn. So you could, you could, you could infuse this sort of hiring your friends mentality or whatever, but like I have to, they hired me, you know, horror interviews, sight unseen, application from LinkedIn. So it's not to say that isn't a world that could improve, but, but what I demanded as far as the rate of improvement was just not going to happen. That became apparent. And, um, it, you know, at some level you have to just decide what you're about. Um, that being said, I learned so much about things that I use every day as far as social media tools and the real nitty gritty of how to create audience, um, not just for a publication, but for any product that's trying to have a digital voice. Um, and that was an invaluable experience and in, in, in sort of directly address your question, part of that job, being director of brand marketing at Daily Dot, was meeting a lot of folks. And part of one of the things that I was involved with running were distribution partnerships. So when I would go to our New York office, I set up a cold call with the director of partnerships at Mike, um, one of my favorite publications, um, and learned about how he was doing what he was doing. Then that led to meeting folks at a number of different organizations, Refinery29, um, Bustle, sort of all of our little suite of competitive um, benchmarks. And 
through reading those books, I started to see what different needs were being sort of met by particular roles. Started seeing some other things that I could do um, and imagining myself in that. So without dragging this on too long, through just that building of context through my actual job, I was able to start thinking about what I might do if I were to do something else from a full-time role perspective. And this is just very random, but I'm sure you experienced this. People call you up and say, hey, you work in media. I'm trying to do this. Tell me what you think I should do. Mm-hmm. Taking those calls, as much as that can sometimes feel like, oh, it's just more time. I'm not getting paid for this. Like my friend told me to talk to their friend who's trying to do this thing. All right, fine. Those sorts of conversations led to two gigs that I was doing on the side mm-hmm. um, that sort of got me thinking about whether or not I could just fill up my entire day with these sorts of things. And that was what led me to say, all right, um, it's time for me to leave my role, you know, as director of marketing this publication because of cultural fit issues. And also, I have this other thing I can do that's like nothing I've ever done, but why not? Um, so what was your next step after that? And, and I guess this is when we should also return to the whole concept of being overqualified, but scared kind of imposter syndrome. How did you fight through that mindset to once and for all, just do it? Yeah. You know, in this case, it wasn't there. It's interesting. It's the harder part was after I already decided to do it. The decision to do it wasn't hard because the, the financials made sense very quickly. Um, and I think this is very different, like I have to caveat, than when you're creating a product that's new, that's going to take years before it can be profitable, because there's a lot of investment that has to be made there. And, and in many instances, when you're providing a service, that really the, the investment is your blood, sweat, and tears, it's a little easier to stomach that, um, because the risk factor is a little more minimal. So when I saw that it was clear I'd be able to maintain, you know, my earnings in my role as director of brand marketing doing consulting work, when I saw that the two could be at least equal, it was like, why not? And I guess the fear that some might point to is, well, how do you know it's going to be like that every month? I don't. But it hasn't been a problem yet, you know. Um, and if when it if at some point it does become a problem, I'll address it at that time, you know. The bigger problem is making sure you can create a suite of projects that's that's actually doable, and then figuring out how to surround yourself with the tools and potential help to to be able to do that for me. But that's because of where I chose to go with it. I don't think that's that doesn't it's just different world if I had a product idea and I wanted to go start that that's a whole different conversation Mm. so you talk about the financials just make sense so at that point when you were doing things on the side you were matching your (laughs) you were matching your income at least you know monthly or the way I'll put it is I saw the road to matching okay um certainly when one has a full-time job 
to say that you're making just as much as at that full-time job in the, in, in the evening and on the weekends, like, I mean, you know, maybe that's a thing, but I'm not going to necessarily say it. Could be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are saying that maybe, yes, at that time that was the case. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll, we'll take what some people say and moving right along into let's, you know, demystify some of the whole process of starting your own digital and content marketing consulting brand, because there, there are a lot of layers to unpack here. The first step would be obviously. And by the way, I don't think I'm done starting it. Right, right. So okay. that that's why there's so many layers. But let's talk about what you did at first. Like the day you said, okay, we're going to make Lola Consulting a thing. What were some of the first steps you took? Did you, did you focus more on acquiring clients and, and structuring those projects? Or did you actually start the whole LLC and trademarking process? Oh, listen, <laughs> part A is all I focused on. Got it. Like the work it started it started and continues to be so much about the work mm-hmm. that part of my focus now is thinking about really carving out how I want side B of the coin, what you just mentioned, like really what your how much of this is about your organization versus you being an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, for example, Lola Consulting as an entity is an LLC yet, and I don't know that that's what I want to call it um you know from a legal standpoint it's my name as an independent contractor but i don't think that's that's certainly not the end goal or even the most advisable situation from a standpoint of you know taxes and all of the things that we have to think about when we're independent contractors however and this is something i would say it's it's something that everybody should really challenge themselves to think about when they get thrown into a situation where they're they're starting to sell their work as a service as an individual you've got it's 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 hard and it's hard every day for me to really carve out the time to do that personal work that's going to create long-term value for you um when the client part is going well so that's what it was from the beginning. I do think the idea of just jumping into the work was the right thing for me. Um, I learned how to create an invoice as I went, you know, everything, how to create a proposal. Wasn't like I sat down for a month and said, all right, I'm going to go learn how to create a proposal. I just kind of did. Right. How did you line up these clients? And then how did you approach marketing to acquire new clients? Well, I mean, this is obviously the corniest thing one can ever say and that work is your net worth but it was all about using my existing relationships um and being open to conversations and seeing where they would lead um so for example one of the things that i started doing from moonlighting standpoint even while i was at the daily dot was helping a friend of mine from business school's startup a mobile app that was focused on um, multicultural content acquire users. Um, and I, and at the time I did talk to my boss about that to make sure, you know, my, at the daily doc, make sure he was comfortable with that. And it was just make, making, make sure we're not sort of sharing information that's proprietary to us, but other than that, you do whatever you want on your own time. Um, so I do think that's important for people who are getting in the side hustle world, like make sure you're not putting yourself at any, 
legal risk. Um, and and it takes some cojones, but you got to have that conversation with your boss when you're going to do this, even if it's moonlighting, especially if it feels a little close from an industry standpoint to what you're doing. Um, and with social media, right? Like we're all open about this. Like it's not like the people at NPR don't know what you're doing, right, Nikki? Right, right. But in this day and age, most people just respect it and almost expect it. So that's totally fine. Um, it was conversations like that that led to, honestly, if in the last year and a half I've worked on projects with 10 or so different clients, um, and I do have a, a, a sort of leader of the pack where I spend most of my time for sure, especially now, like I would say pretty much 100% of my time, 100% of my time in the last couple of months and probably for the next month and a half, um, you know, will be with my one major client. But this time last year, there was definitely much more of a mix. And in the future, there will be much more of a mix. I have some things in the works. Um, it's just a matter of getting that balance right. Um, but I think that you know, getting yourself out there to the extent that you can create an opportunity. It's just about conversations and using your network. Yeah. Were you just reaching out to people on LinkedIn as well to, to say, to offer your expertise or was it all no, people approaching you? Okay. It was, it was people, a combination of people approaching me. Hey, I worked with you on this thing. Um, my friend's trying to do this. Do you want to talk to them? Or, hey, I'm doing this thing. I saw on LinkedIn, you're now independent. Can we talk? That's happened a number of times. Or it's, I'm catching up with a mentor. That's what led to my work with um, my biggest client. Now, they're, they're more of a private um, organization, so I'm not going to share the name. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm located out in Orange County for this work for the time being. And this was getting back in touch with someone who was a mentor of mine and who I worked for at Dell and said, hey, like we have some work that you'd be great for. Come meet the team and see if um, you might be the right person to help us with some of these projects. And that became a huge opportunity for me and really has allowed me to explore an industry. I'll mention the industry, it's commercial real estate, that I would have never seen myself getting excited about or knowing anything about. Um, but there's so much that applies. And that was just from having a conversation with someone that I used to work with. Um, you know, as far as my push, I certainly do make sure I'm keeping in touch with people who I've started conversations with. So here's an example. I wanted to make sure I gave one of, one that really didn't work out, but I continued to put the effort into staying in touch friend of mine from business school worked in a magazine. They were thinking about bringing someone in to help them acquire users on social media um, on a contract basis. So, you know, that's interesting to me. All right, let's talk. Um, and we had conversations. We had conversations, just never went anywhere. But every couple of months, I just follow up and say, hey, let me know if there's still anything you might want to work on. Or, hey, I saw this thing that you guys did. It was really interesting. It's just stoking those fires of conversation um, and and letting people know when you think their work is interesting. That's really, in fact, if there's anything I would say 
anyone who's trying to acquire clients should really focus on is start to think of it less of, I need to get that person to pay me for a project. It's, I need to start a conversation with people who are doing work that I find interesting. I like that. That is an excellent piece of advice. And once you start acquiring these clients, how did you establish yourself as a legitimate social media and digital expert in this saturated market? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a great question, Nikki. And I have a very concrete answer to it. It's about having some sort of competitive advantage that is, to some extent, unique to you. So for me, it really is about that bringing together creativity and data and analytics to the extent that one of the things I invest in monthly are a number of subscriptions to tools that allow me to see a little bit more from a data standpoint than you can just see when you're on Facebook analytics or when you're on Twitter analytics on their actual platform. So namely, CrowdTangle is, it's probably my biggest business expense of the month. Um, and they're giving as me and as, as an individual a huge break. I mean, this is something that's used by the newsrooms of every major publication we can think of. Yeah, but I, I, got, I, I was the one who sort of championed their relationship with the Daily Dot. And then when I went independent, I got my own account. And yes, it is. it feels very expensive, but it's undoubtedly the thing that when I'm in these initial conversations um, with potential clients, they say, whoa, like you're going to be the link to me being able to know all of that with the click of a few buttons. And that's just, boom, like that creates an opportunity because I'm, I'm not just telling you something you've already heard. Um, and that takes an investment on, on my part, but it, it pays for itself. Um, another tool that's similar is social rank um, from a, a seeing behind the veil of what influencers are, are doing. And I encourage anybody who's in this social service space to look into those two tools. Um, social rank particularly is, I think, less known, but so powerful as far as just understanding who the Twitter followers are. And I'm talking individually for any handle in the Twitter sphere. Mm. And, you know, understanding how to rank and what's called social rank for a reason, their <laughs> relative influence in a way that's like makes you think of a clout score as ancient history. And you talked about things that you are subscri- subscribed to, which costs money. But I'm interested also in what techniques you use to keep your costs low as you were starting over as a um, business owner. Well, I mean... I would be critical of this one because there's you can always grow more if you have more help, but I don't tend to, um, unless I really have to, and I have some relationship with folks I reach out to if I need to outsource parts of my work that, you know, that I would then pay for, but it's really a one man show at this point, And that one woman show, if you will, um, that certainly keeps costs low. Um, I did. I, I think I was very hungry with subscriptions or not hungry, but sort of overzealous with monthly subscriptions when I first started out. If I don't use it in three months, I get rid of it. I'm not going to be paying monthly for things that I'm not using. So that's that was another big thing for me. Um, and yeah, just in the past, definitely two months, I've cut off some of my 
descriptions of tools because I mean I've talked to you about a couple of them. There's so many more where that came from um, that I'm not using. Uh, so that's another piece of it. And then just starting to think a little bit differently about your how what you do is structured. Like if you're working at a Dell or if you're working at a big company, part of your income is this is this annual bonus. Like when you're a contractor, you don't have that. So you have to think differently about the mix between, you know, what you're willing to spend and what you're willing to save and, and all of those things and really reach out to the right help to get you in a place for a long-term success. And those are the things that I'm continuing to think about every day and ask for help about and meet with the right people and have the right resources because I know I can't do that all on my own. So I don't have all the answers, but I, but certain things become way more important than when your company just kind of does all that for you. You know, and you can just kind of like check the box and sign up for your 401k and get your bonus and a lot of these things are just taken care of. That's That's not the case. And that is one of the biggest challenges of being independent. Um, and, and I'm sure like, you know, you are aware of a lot of this having talked to everyone that you have. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's worth freedom. <laughs> mm. So let's transition a little bit to talk about building partnerships, because as you mentioned, a lot of your business is based on the relationships you form. And so I'm curious to know how you approach building relationships and starting that conversation without seeming like you're looking for something in return or selling anything. It's absolutely about knowing what the people you're looking to partner with are passionate about. And that takes time and study. So for example, if let's say a friend calls me and says, oh, there's this, there's this organization that my such and such runs and they're looking to acquire users or they're looking to do more with their social media or they're looking to, um, you know, revamp their website presence or whatever it is. Uh, would you like to talk to them about how you can help? There's a couple ways you can answer. I'd love to talk to them. But the thing that you just said they need help with isn't my expertise. Humility is key. So that there might even get you to a place where that person might think of another problem you might be able to solve for them because of your honesty. Mm. Secondly, you learn more than that, what that initial introduction told you. So if you're going to any meetings with the potential prospect and you haven't looked at that person's LinkedIn, the LinkedIn of everyone they work with, their Twitter feed, whatever the public information is, they public blog posts, you got to be able to bring all of those things up in your conversations with them. So they see you as someone who not only wants their dollar, but is passionate about the business that they're passionate about, that is passionate about the work that they're passionate about, and that is willing to do um, above is willing to go above and beyond to make sure they understand. Um, even before that very first discussion, which you're certainly never going to get paid for, mm-hmm. unless you're like, I mean, I do hear some of the big agencies are able to get paid for coming to show up for a proposal. Like, God bless you. That's a whole nother level. <laughs> that's 
it's that, and that's great. But for anybody just starting out, that's not going to be the case. You will spend time to win opportunities that will not be part of what you're compensated for. And sometimes you might win two out of 10 of those opportunities. Um, that's just part of how this particular thing works. But um, if you're not willing to do that, you'll you'll lose 10 out of 10 of those opportunities. Then nobody's happy. And the other thing is ask them questions, you know? Like as much as you've done your research and you can talk about what they do, take yourself out of that as any conversation as well and be truly inquisitive about what keeps them up at night and the things that they're thinking about and things that they're passionate about. A combination of those two, I think, is is a foolproof um, method towards building relationships and just being gracious, even if they say no. Thank you very much for your time. Love to keep in touch. Mm-hmm. You never know who they're going to refer you to down the line. That That is huge. The being gracious part to knows. I think everyone can work on and get better with that. I know I can because, um, you know, no's are tough. No's are definitely tough, but I'm learning to, uh, you know, what's the phrase? Like eat no's like vitamins and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really? Cause, because you don't get no's if you didn't ask. You don't get yeses if you don't get no's. Right. Like, tell me somebody who gets yeses who doesn't get no's. I don't know who that person is. That's a magical human being. Right. Um, so the, the no's are just part of it. Yep. And then there's not always a reason. I, I think I question, I think it's important to do a post audit of any situation where you didn't get what you wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. But to start obsessing about that becomes very counterproductive because sometimes it just wasn't meant to be and you move on Mm -hmm. but if you're changing your business model every time someone says no to you what would we have any of the amazing innovations that we have no exactly and so when you do get the yes how do you set those clear expectations with clients so (laughs) especially when some of these are recommendations from friends and you you definitely want to get that referral so talk about setting clear expectations and then how do you ensure repeat business listen that part is a work in progress, my friend. I mean, it's something that if there's anything that keeps me up at night, it's the importance of continuous improvement at that very bit, setting expectations. I think for people who are full of a lot of passion and want to do everything, it's so hard. Mm. It's so hard to really understand what you can achieve. Um, and the, the work that I'm doing with myself to get better at this involves making sure that proposal doesn't include anything that you can't absolutely commit to. I have failed at this more times than not, I promise you. Um, But it it becomes very important to start to really hone in on how many hours it will take you to do what you said you're going to do and do those hours actually exist in your day. Like, be honest about the fact that you don't have the 24 hours of every day to play with. When you do the math, is it possible? Understanding your habits. So like, let's don't assume that next month you're going to be able to get 300 times what you did last month done just because of this sort of like divine desire. Like that's never going to happen. Um, assume you can, your productivity can improve maybe, you know, two or three X at most in a particular month, if you have a really heavy plate of things to get done. Um, 
but set yourself up for success in that way in the proposal so that at the end of the month when you go back you can say check the box check the box check the box and if you're lucky there are some delighters that weren't on the list that certainly gets you the repeat business um and then you know what then this happens and it's happened to me and will continue to when there's things that aren't on the list that you've committed to i find that if you generally just state that and say how you're going to remedy it um that's not a deal breaker for most people most people who are looking for a service provider outside of their organization are already finding everything that you do so incremental to what they could have gotten done otherwise that there's a lot of flexibility especially if you're open and honest with them um but holding yourself to what's possible is a very challenging thing and i'm definitely still working on that um it's it's important and it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's so hard, especially with social when people just have no concept of just how much work is actually needed before you can get to a place where you can see X impressions or and you know don't get me started on people who think you can press a button and make a post viral like or replicate a, a viral post. It's just um, a challenging space, but. Well, yeah, and I mean, if you're telling anybody, if anybody who's doing this is telling anybody that that's possible, yeah, then they're setting themselves up for failure. Right. You bring up a very good point. Setting expectations as far as just what's possible is very important. Um, and a lot of what I do is helping people allocate their paid advertising spend and social as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'll make no, I, I want to make it clear to folks that that's a huge part of how this works um, more often than not is being a part of the machine where you're acquiring reach through funds. Um, I don't think it's always clear the extent to which most brands do this. Um, And it's a very debatable thing, especially when you get into more of the journalistic space. Um, But beyond that, it's almost like you got to kind of bring people along. If you're going to spend Whatever amount, it could be thousands, it could be hundreds of thousands, it could be millions on a TV spot, outdoor ad, magazine ad, that you're, you're, the measurement is pretty fuzzy. You're, why wouldn't you at least try this tactic that you can use to at least try? It's going to be way more zeros, way fewer zeros on the number of costs, and you'll be able to see what happens. So like, don't take that out of the mix when you're willing to do these other things that are so much less measurable in my, could be somewhat controversial, which marketing tactics makes the most sense in, in the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always going to be a mix, but you've got to sometimes really, when you're, especially when you're talking about social media, include education of the space as part of your offering in a very respectful way, because the last thing someone wants is a service provider who's sort of eye rolling at their lack of exposure to this thing that you spend all day staring at. Like have the empathy to understand that. How could you be aware of what's there? You don't spend all day staring at it. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of spending all day, how did you determine how much you wanted to charge? I mean, you know, when you're in corporate America, you're doing the hourly rate, but then as an entrepreneur, there are just so many things to factor in. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, and I'm happy to 
to share my process. I'll start with the fact that I had a couple other friends in the content marketing space that discussions with to kind of see how they do it Mm -hmm. so that's important like know the space that you're in and how things are normally done um but as a part of that I really thought about the fact that because I know this stuff since there's so much research involved it can take so much time an hourly model for me personally doesn't really work it's more of here's this monthly amount based on this commitment and a range of hours. And that's what works for me because it allows me to feel good about the fact that I may spend way more than that number of hours on it. And it allows the client to at least feel confident that the number is based on a minimum commitment of hours that you can always, almost always assume you're going to go over. Mm -hmm. And if you do the math, there is an hourly rate where you put yourself um, that you can defend based on publicly available data about how much some services cost hourly. So, you know, I'm always going to be above the hourly roll-up. I'm sorry, I'm always going to come in below the hourly roll-up it would cost at, like, a big agency to do social media marketing. That's part of my competitive advantage. Um, it's still I'm, It's still able to be a situation where that number is is very palatable for me because I don't have as much overhead as a huge agency. Um, so it's really make doing your homework on what the rest of the landscape looks like, but also really, I mean, and this is, this is a podcast geared towards um, discussing the stories of women of color. So I think it's really important to say, we've all seen the data and we know the cents on the dollar that we are average an average paid versus our white male colleagues. So like, you got to be pretty bullish in what you're going to ask for, because you're definitely not going to get more than you asked for. Mm. ever. Okay. So like, no one's going to pay you more than you asked for. Ask for not just what you think you deserve, but what you think you might be able to get. And then deliver amazing work that makes it worth it for your clients. Mm. You're not going to complain. Promise. Um, a simpler way to put it, that someone told me um, advice that was given to me by one of my, my white male colleagues. I don't know that I'd always advise this, but just to add some levity and put it into perspective, think of what you think is reasonable and then double it and start with. <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> and on that note, um, I want us to wind down and then hop over to the lightning round. So I would love to know, you know, when you really started to feel um, like you were reaping the rewards financially from your business and what were the first things you invested back into your business? Well, we kind of touched on this a little bit. So it's different, right? Because I'm a service provider. Yeah. So it's, you know, I don't have a an office space that I pay for every month yet. Maybe that's something that's coming down the line. I haven't hired full-time employees, anything like that. Um, So as far as what I've put back into my business, it really is my investment in tools that allow me to be competitive versus others providing similar services. And I was doing that from month one. And in month one, I mean, I don't know how else to answer that, but that to say 
maybe it was luck and maybe it's the kind of work that I'm doing. But in month one, it was financial success. That doesn't mean we don't want it to grow. Of course we do. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's just, that's kind of how it went. And I think it, I wouldn't say it should be like this for everyone, actually. I don't like that kind of prescriptive advice, but I think for a lot of people, if you dabble long enough in the side hustle part of things, there are a lot of instances where the reason why you decide it's time for you to be able to do something with all of your time is that it started to add up to be financially reasonable for you. You weren't losing anything versus what you would have been getting before if anything, situation looks even better. Um, and you just continue to go from there. So for me, that's what it was. It was kind of, this is the month where I'm going to resign. And it's because I know that I'm in a place where I can uh, make the same money. All right. So let's head on into the lightning round um you know oh, the, fine. yes round. ladies and gentlemen um you know the deal we ask five questions and you say the first thing that comes to mind are you ready yes ma'am all righty number one what's your secret to productivity enjoying my leisure time mm. Number two, what's an internet resource that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Grammarly. Grammarly.com, one of my new favorites. <laughs> what's been the best business book that you've read this year? More of a memoir than a business book, but about a businesswoman, How I Became Hetty Jones. Hmm. I will link to that in the show notes. Number you will love it, by Yay. the way. And I listen to everything through Audible, by the way. Oh, thank that's you. How I, so that's how I listen while I'm working. Okay. And your fiance is one of the other people who talks a lot about that. Yes. Uh, I totally agree with him. Audiobooks are the truth. <laughs> like you can be double the person. When yeah, you I, I still <laughs> I still need to get into audiobooks. I'm, I'm transitioning. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, who inspires you and why? Oh, I'm going to go with the corny answer. It's it's my family. Um, my parents are the hardest working people I know. My brother is the most compassionate person I know. My sister is the most interesting person I know. Um, I'm just very lucky to be surrounded by them. And they're also, they deal with my, you talked about in one of your episodes, my your particular brand of crazy. They deal with mine <laughs> every day. Um, and I'm very grateful for them for it. Uh, gotta love fam. And then finally, number five, uh, what's a personality trait that you think consider contributes to your success? Gosh, that's a great one. Um, intellectual curiosity. Like I just want to know about things. It's interesting for me to learn about things, people's experiences, parts of their job that others might think are boring um their kids like what their kids teachers stuff that really shouldn't matter to me i just for some reason happen to find it interesting it's also a huge liability because i want to read everything and look at everything and experience everything uh which takes time but that goes back to why i said 
secret to my productivity is my leisure time because a lot of my leisure involves exploring and that ends up feeding positively into my work. And I'm continuing to build a comfort level with the fact that that's just part of my process mm-hmm. um, and, and be very unapologetic for it. Like a morning spent reading articles to me isn't necessarily a wasted morning. Um, I know some people disagree, but that's, it's never been something that hasn't benefited me in the long run is to really express that intellectual curiosity um, and, and passion for ideas. As we call it in my high school, a zest for learning. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So before we end, tell us what's next for Lola. Thank you. Um, so, you know, what's really next is by this time next year, I hope to have a website, a personal website up and running. I've been functioning on my sort of Google document. Here are my capabilities, and here's what I did for other clients to talk to people about my work. The website is a is a huge next step that's important for credibility. Um, I hope to by this time next year have uh, and continually diversify the set of projects I'm working on. And when I say set of projects, who knows? That could be multiple projects for the same client. It could mean many different clients. Um, it just means continually, continuing to fill my basket of experiences with different and exciting things that make me a better partner to those that I partner with. Um, and just in the next few months, I'm looking forward to really enjoying time in California outside of staring at my computer screen, which I've done a ton of since I've been based out here for this project. Um, but now that my move back to the East is impending probably around January, um, I want to get out and, and see everything that SoCal has to offer. So personally, you know, you should see a few more interesting uh, pictures of me seeing the sites around here on my on my Facebook and Instagram and all that. Because um, <laughs> when you don't see those, it's because I'm staring at a computer. Oh. <laughs> You haven't shared anything fun in the last couple of weeks. I'm like, I haven't done anything. Uh, that brings. Well, I'm glad you're going to be able to get out some more. Um, that brings us to the last question, which is really, how can we stay in contact with you after this episode? Yes, that is super exciting. Um, anyone can email me at Lola at LolaConsulting.com or tweet me at Lola's Studio. L-O-L-A-S-S-T-U-D-I-O. I think it's going all right. Um, and Facebook is also a great place. You can find Lola Consulting um, at Lola Consulting on Facebook, our page. Um, or you can simply, if you know you want to be buds, shoot me a friend request. I'm not precious about these things. Or shoot me a message. And I'll definitely get back in touch when I can. Um, as, as Nikki knows, I love to communicate and have conversations about any and everything. Um, meeting people is, is certainly one of my passions and has always been and will continue to be. So whether you'd like to just chat or you want to talk about work or you're a younger person in need of a mentor, which I know we all believe in. Yes. Uh, Nikki, you and I definitely, it's that, that's, we didn't touch on that, but gosh, don't be shy about asking for advice and mentorship. It's been a huge part of my success. Um, and so giving back to that is super important. And uh, if you email me and you don't hear back, feel free to email back again and call me out on that and we'll definitely get in touch. 
<laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, and that goes for me too, guys. If you email me and you don't hear from me, just email me again. It's not yeah, personal. Nothing <laughs> personal. And we, we expect to be harassed when we don't stand up to what we're committing to right here, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> All righty. So Lola, thank you so much for being a guest on Side Hustle Pro. It was so nice to have you in the guest chair. It's been so fun. And you guys know Nikki was my college roommate. Yes. So, I love it. I'm so proud of everything you're doing. I'm so excited about this podcast and likewise so likewise which i is why i had to have you on here guys when i was thinking about business school lola's the first person i reached out to um to weigh the pros and cons and you know then clearly we ran into each other at union square and, right. like, oh, <laughs> and i was like don't worry nobody knows <laughs> so anywho with that i'm gonna wrap this episode thank you again and there you have it Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at side hustle pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Side Hustle Pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.